Okay, let's begin. Parshat Vayechi, the last parsha of Genesis. Look at page 306. That's where you will find it. I'm sorry to be a new Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chapter 47, verse 28, Vayechi. I saw something that re- referred to the fact that there's, in the scroll, there's no break. I mean, in all scrolls, there's no break. You, you mentioned that. That's so right. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. Hi, welcome. It's okay. Make yourself at home here. All right, I am. Um, I reread for maybe the tenth time of Eva Zornberg's, because uh, it's the final chapter of her book on Genesis, and so I want to express my gratitude to her again for for clarifying and focusing my thoughts. <coughs> it says, "Vayechi Yaakov, Jacob lived." Vayechi means he lived. That is the name of this portion, which is also ironic because this is the story of Jacob's deathbed uh, experience, his final words to, you know, uh, his, uh, his sons and grandsons. So that happens in other portions. Chaye uh, um, Sarah, which is called the life of Sarah, she dies. Describes her death, right? So um, this that that is something that we see elsewhere in the Torah. So this is an opportunity, I think, uh, to look at the arc of Jacob's life through a close reading of this portion. That's what I was doing. Jacob first appears in chapter twenty-five of Genesis. And here he is, still center stage, in chapter 50. So that's half the book, uh, is, is the life of Jacob. And uh, it's quite a turbulent life. Um, now, let's see, how, I, how, how to approach this? I think we'll do it first by reading Let's just read the text so we're familiar with, with uh, 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 some of it. It's very poignant in and of itself. So I'm on, cha- on page 306, and this is uh, Vayechi. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. Jacob's days, the years of his life, were 147. Now, when Israel's time to die drew near, and Jacob and Israel are interchangeable names of Father Jacob or Father Israel. And they interchange all the time. Uh, and we've talked about this in the past, looking for a pattern or a reason. I have a theory today, which I'll share with you as, as we go on. When Israel's time to die drew near, he summoned his son Joseph and said to him, If I have but found favor in your sight... Please put your hand under my thigh and treat me with faithful kindness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. When I am laid to rest with my ancestors, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. You remember what that burial place is? The cave that Abraham purchases back 
in Chayisara, where Ma'arat HaMachpelah, the field that Abraham buys with the cave in it, where Abraham and Sarah are buried, and Isaac and Rebekah are buried, where Leah is buried, and where Jacob wants to be buried. He replied, I will do as you say. And he said, swear it to me. So Joseph swore it to him. Israel then bowed down at the head of the bed. So that's the first scene uh, of this portion. Then, chapter 48. After these things, they said to Joseph, Look, your father is fading. The Hebrew word is chole. He's sick. He's ill. So he took his two sons with him, Ephraim and Manasseh. When they told Jacob, saying, Look, your son Joseph has come, Israel rallied and sat up in the bed. Israel strengthened himself and sat up in the bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, So here's what Jacob says to Joseph. Let's just, we'll just read through this, then we'll break it down. El Shaddai appeared to me in Luz, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. When was that? The Jacob's Ladder, right? He's, rem he's telling Joseph about how when he was running away from home, he had a dream in a place called Luz, which he renamed Bethel, Bethel, of Jacob's Ladder, and there was a promise. So El Shaddai appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, saying to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, I will make you a multitude of peoples, and I will give this land to your seed after you as an everlasting possession. So he's remembering that promise. Now then, your two sons born to you in the land of Egypt, <coughs> excuse me, before my arrival in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be to me like Reuben and Shimon. So Jacob wants to essentially adopt Joseph's two sons to be of this equivalent status as Jacob's other son. But your progeny whom you engender after them are yours, which we don't ever hear about. We never hear that Joseph has other, other children. They will be called by their brother's names in their family allotment. In other words, this is predicting when they will be come back to the land of Israel. So Jacob is already... Uh, apparently sharing knowledge of uh, what will happen in future times. And this is an important part of how this portion is interpreted. Uh, so there will be the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, who are uh, Joseph, Joseph's sons. There is no tribe of Joseph, right? His sons. But any other children are part of, are part of Ephraim and Manasseh. And then, so... But your progeny, whom you engender after them, are yours. They will be called by their brothers' names in their family allotment. Then listen to what comes next. And I, as I was coming from Padan, Rachel, Meta'alai, died on me in the land of Canaan, on the road, only a stretch of ground before reaching Ephrat. I buried her there on the way to Ephrat, uh, that is Bethlehem. Okay, wait a minute. What's going on? What do you read here? What? Well, this is Joseph's mother. Is this an, he's talking about Joseph's mother, right? 
something about talking about Joseph and his sons seems to have reminded him of Rachel. But there's something um, non sequitur about it, right? Why did he bury Rachel there and not take her the few extra yards to uh, Hebron? This, these verses beg the question about Jacob's inner state and uh, what might be going on. Is Jacob now regretting that he's going to be buried not next to... Is that what's going on? Maybe. Uh, maybe Jacob is close to death and he's going... He's, he's oscillating between now and then and when, maybe it's, this is a deathbed consciousness. We don't know, except that this is not, because listen to what happens next. Yes? It just, it seems like his relationship with Rachel is so important to him, and yet he has to sort of leave her for the children in this liminal place. Like, it's a bit of a sacrifice that he never gets to fully possess Rachel. Right. So I feel like he must have that longing even still on his deathbed. Still on his deathbed. Mm -hmm. That's very much part of it, I think. I think more so on his deathbed. More so on his deathbed, uh-huh. Jacob is... Even now, he feels incomplete in his life. He has regrets. Uh, Wasn't there something about the idols that Rachel took? Well, yes. Does he feel guilty? And the commentators don't miss this. Because... When Jacob and Rachel and Leah and their whole household are running away from Laban, right? This is back, uh, I wrote, uh, um, Genesis chapter 31. You don't have to finger back there, but I'll do it. Um, Laban catches up to them and says, Who stole my household gods? And Jacob, and why did you run away from me? And Jacob responded by saying to Laban, Because I was afraid. Uh, I said to myself, Suppose you steal your daughters from me. But the one with whom you find your gods shall not live. See for yourself, in front of all of us, what I have with me, and then take it back. Because Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So in that episode, Rachel uh, tricks Laban, who comes into her tent, and Rachel is sitting on cushions, underneath which are the family household trafim, the uh, household idols that she has brought with her uh, on their escape. And, and she says to Laban, excuse me, but I'm in the way of women, and please don't disturb me. I'm menstruating. Please don't disturb me. And he leaves the tent. So that's, you know, that, that's how Rachel handles that situation. There's no reason to say that she doesn't have as much right to those household objects as, as he does. But hold on one second, Gary. Um, my point is that um, the commentators point out that maybe he still felt, not felt guilty, because he didn't even, he never, or he must have found this out later. Maybe, who knows? But he swore he might feel responsible for Rachel's death in more ways than one because of this episode where he said, anyone who in whose possession these are um, shall not live. Um, and uh, he makes this declaration not, 
So again, in the layers of story here, not only does Jacob love Rachel with all his soul, but maybe he also feels that, or knows that, or somehow feels that her early death was his fault also. It's one of the things the commentators discuss. Gary? I'm just wondering, it, it, to the earlier point, if, if the Torah is saying that all these things that are the predicates for the narrative of our people and for the development of mankind, family generation by generation following an orderly lineage, lineage uh, place, it's all a charade. That all of the pieces can be thrown up and disregard, and still you should be able to mark your arrow through the center to what the purpose of life is about. That in order to support us in our fundamental weakness in our early stages of growth, we have to have mommy does this, and this is the son, and this is the tribe here, and we have to have a physical land that we're attached to. But as we die, we elevate to a more, possibly to, more pure, to a more pure connection. Well, none of those things matter. All true. That's what I feel. That um, that the reason Torah is literature that and and holy holy text that we're still interested in is because it embraces the paradoxes of life, which is that sometimes we sense, and this is where we're going with this today. Sometimes we understand that we have a place in the universe, and other times we're just in the dark. And we, and that's what I think might be, was, that's my current theory or story about why Jacob and Israel's name keeps flo- flowing back and forth and back and forth. Because Jacob himself has spent much of his life in the dark and then has had other periods of his life of, of clarity and a sense of there is a destiny, there's a reason, a place in the universe for us, there's, and, and other parts of his life Don't no, know. don't know. Just don't know. Just getting through. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I think that's that's. But what I was saying, not not to overburden the point. Please. But what I was saying was slightly different in that perhaps the gods, as revealed through the Torah, are saying that he's right in, in, in this confusion, in the sense that none of these things matter. They're all. You know, family, land, and things like that. Let it all go. Mm-hmm. Let it all go and get to the singular truth beyond verbiage. Excellent. This will come up again in the commentaries. Very much connected to that. Did I see another hand before? I was just yes. curious. You, you used the word, um, uh, you, you said Rachel died on me. Yeah, the Hebrew is very interesting. Um, the Hebrew says, Va'ani. And I, dot, 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 bevo'i mi padan, when I was coming, to, when I was uh, coming back from padan, back from Laban's, uh, uh, Laban's house, meta alai Rachel. I would translate it into English as, Rachel up and died on me. That's how I would put it in English. But it's about me. You know. Right. This, this it's very clearly Jacob. This is this is Jacob's narrative about himself. Right. Uh, Not much empathy. Oh uh, well. For her. For, for her. At, at that moment, I yes. suppose so. It's about his loss. Right. 
Be'eretz Canaan Baderach, in the land of Canaan, on the way. Be'od Kivrat Aretz. Before we had reached the, the approach to Ephrat, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrat, um, in Beit Lechem. That's where Rachel's buried, on the road to Ephrat. That seems pretty unceremonious. That's the other thing that the commentators, many commentators point out. She didn't have a proper burial. And maybe he regrets that, too. And he's thinking about burial in the cave and all that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe he's remembering that what he, the, what he wished he'd done for Rachel and didn't. Also, were you going to say something? Did she die in childbirth? Uh, yes, after Benjamin is born. Mm-hmm. She dies in childbirth. Yes? Um, well, I have a previous translation that... Um, says, um, Rachel died to my sorrow. And I want to point out that Spanish has a similar construction, same murió again, which is generally intended to signal grief and a very personal loss. So I would mm. interpret it that way. I like this translation. Very nice. There's something about up and died on me that sounds a little casual. I was just trying to come up with the how we might say the on me in English, but I, I, your point is very well taken. Thank you. That to my sorrow might be a good, a good translation. Thank you. Thank you. Blaze? Uh, in 48.1, it says, After these things, they said to Joseph, Look, your father is fading. Who, who are the they? One would presume the attendants in the palace, oh, but we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Um, okay, but then after verse yes, Esther. El Shaddai. The only time I have heard that is in my own family. El Shaddai. Oh, oh, it's a venerable biblical name for God. Oh, it's not just farting. It's right. more than that. That's right. That's right. Because um, here it is. Yeah. Explicitly in Torah. Yeah. So it predates Ashkenazim and Sephardim by a long, long time. Um, uh, Shaddai is, uh, becomes, we don't know what Shaddai is in the Torah. Okay, it doesn't say, the God of Shaddai. We don't know what it is. My favorite contemporary reading is that Shaddaiim are breasts. And maybe this is uh, a conflation of all the different Canaanite gods whose names become part of the God of Israel, and maybe a, femi- a feminine name similar to Rachaman, which means the compassionate one, but Rechem means womb. We've spoken about that before. So God's name is also womb-like and breast, but we don't know. That's me just trying to do a, a hold on one second. Uh, however, what I want to say is that what Shaddai comes to mean and why it gets written on mezuzah, mezuzahs. You'll often see a shin on a mezuzah or a Shaddai because it's read as an acronym for Shomer Daltot Yisrael, Guardian of the Doorways of Israel. So that's how it came to be something placed on mezuzahs. Hi. Uh, and also on tefillin. Right, right. Come make yourselves, come, come, make sure to get a book off the card. Marka. My understanding of Shaddai and Kabbalah. Shaddai and Kabbalah is that it's linked to Yasod, which is what Joseph is anyway. So again, it's generative, it's the womb, it's, you know, this, this 
sexual organs, and that's also a red commentary that said that's the reason Joseph isn't a patriarch because he's a the Yesod is a faucet, so it's it's like the last step before actual realization. Mm -hmm. So it's not the sort of concrete thing. It's it's a, it's a, just a movement through, so that Jacob says El Shaddai here to me points to some understanding of Joseph himself because that's the name of God that's linked to Joseph. Beautiful, beautiful. So uh, in Kabbalistic interpretation, uh, El Shaddai has that significance. Thank you. Now look, what, did you want to say anything, Julia? Yes. Right. And somebody took care of that baby. Right. And he became the son that his father wouldn't let him go when Joseph said you have to leave. Him. That's You're right. There? That's right. Benjamin was the one he, Joseph, Jacob couldn't wouldn't let out of his sight. Mm-hmm. 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 We should tell the story of Benjamin someday. He, Benjamin doesn't get a speaking part. That's right. <laughs> that would be a good story to write. Benjamin's experience. Joseph. Uh, um, let's see. Uh, he wasn't 17 yet because he knew his brother. Yeah. So it was some when Joseph was a child. Um, we, we don't have an exact number, but it's sometime after he was born and before he got sold into slavery. He lost his mother. Joseph lost his mother as a boy. That's right. Huh, we never talk about that either, do we? When we're thinking about Joseph. That, that enriches things even more. So that when he goes out... Go ahead, Gil. Yeah. And he lost his mother because his father placed a curse upon her. Right, his father placed this curse upon her. never calling Jacob to say, hey, I'm alive. It's one more piece that might be in there. Uh-huh, thank you. Estrangement. Mm -hmm. when, when, when Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him, and had him down in that well. Wasn't it Benjamin who, who said no. no? No, 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 it's Reuben. Oh, Reuben. Reuben. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Benjamin is like not in the picture. No, no. He's a baby. It's odd, isn't it? Yeah, no, it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, now listen to what happens next. So, I, verse 7, I buried her there on the way to Ephrat, that is Bethlehem. Verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he asked, Who are these? He's already asked them, right? Yeah. What's going on? And Joseph said to his fathers, They're my sons, whom God has given me here. So, I don't know how to read this other than Jacob, as I said, is his consciousness is wandering. I don't know, but there may be other explanations too. His eyesight is dimming. His eyesight's dimming? Uh, right, there may be concrete explanations, but there, and there's something about this narrative that for me feels like being in someone's uh, bedside as they're close to death. I've, I've, I've been in these situations, and you know, you're going in and out, or you're going up and down, yeah. you know, or what? What is it? It's, it's because he said before, they are mine. Mm-hmm. And then he says... So then he's off talking about Rachel, and then he says, and, 
And, and who are these? So, Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. Jacob said, Bring them to me, pray, that I may bless them. Israel's eyes had grown clouded with age. He could no longer see. So maybe that's the more concrete explanation. Joseph brought them over to him, whereupon he kissed and hugged them. Israel then said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and here God has shown me your progeny as well. Joseph then removed them from his knees. Now, Ephraim and time, don't try to add up how old Ephraim and Manasseh are now. It's like, because based on when they were born and how old they are, I don't know. But so they're little kids. Um, and bowed down before him to the ground. <clears throat> then Joseph took the two of them, Ephraim with his right hand to Israel's left, Ephraim and Manasseh with his left hand to Israel's right. And he brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and placed it on Ephraim's head, even though he was the younger, because the right hand is the primary firstborn hand there. And his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his arms, though Manasseh was the firstborn. He then blessed Joseph, saying, The God before whom walked my fathers Abraham and Isaac, the God who has shepherded me ever since I came into being until this day, the angel who has rescued me from all harm, bless these lads. Through them let my name and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac ever be recalled, and let them greatly multiply within the land. When Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, it seemed wrong to him. So he took hold of his, because Ephraim is the second born. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head onto the head of Manasseh. Joseph said to his father, not that way, father. This is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused, saying, I know, my son, I know. <coughs> He too shall become a people, and he too shall be great. Yet his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you shall the people of Israel give their blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Okay, so those of us who celebrated traditional the traditional blessing for boys on Shabbat is Yisimcha Elohim Kephraim Vechim Nasheh May God bless you like Kephraim Nasheh because it tells us to. So this is the traditional Friday night blessing for boys. And Yisimcha uh, Elohim Boys under 13? No, any sons. Any All, any your whole life. Yeah, your whole life. And girls is Yisimcha Elohim Kesara Rivka Rachel Vleah May God bless you with Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Um, that's just an interesting thing to note. Yeah. That's something we've been doing for a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. I saw a hand. Yes? So this is, has a lot of echoes of Isaac's um, blessing. Jacob right, Jacob. Isaac's eyes are dim. And then he's blessing the younger one. Mm -hmm. And the younger one shall be the greater or whatever. That's right. It's like a repeat of... It's a repeat, except that the conditions are so different. Yeah, but he's doing it Joseph is trying to stop him from doing that because it's not right. But Jacob says, I know, my son, I know. So 
different than Isaac, the story with Isaac, the dynamic is now Jacob is doing this quite intentionally. Yeah. Yeah, but it's the same wording and the same, I agree with you. Yeah. So it's just interesting that, you know, maybe he's actually back there getting his own blessings. Oh, his wow. Blessing, you know, in this wow, what is, I never thought of that. Is Jacob replaying uh, his own uh, youth? That's fascinating to think about. Miriam? Menashe means I've forgotten. Ephraim means you have made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. There could be some significance there. Bob? Something a little peculiar. In verse 14, Israel has his hands on Ephraim and Menashe's head to bless them. And then verse 15 says, and he blessed Joseph. What's going on? Well, I think the plain meaning is strong here, which is that he has told Joseph that he's going to adopt his two sons, as his own, Jacob, as his own. Right. So the blessing he's give, giving them is fundamentally to Joseph. Okay. Because I think, I think okay. that's what that means there. Was there another hand? Okay, let's finish this chapter. Israel then said to Joseph, I am dying now, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your ancestors. And I have given you, first among your brothers, the Shechem mountain ridge, which I won from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. That's an amazing statement. We have absolutely no record in the earlier chapters of, of Jacob winning anything with his sword and his bow. Um, he purchases land in Shechem, in Vayeshev. That's uh, a good deal, too. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's another anomalous, interesting thread here. And then in chapter 49 it says, Jacob then summoned his sons, saying, Gather round that I may tell you what shall befall you, Ba'acharit Hayamim, which is translated here in days to come. What has it got? What have you got there? In the end of days. Acharit Hayamim literally means in the end of days. Um, and uh, then comes a, 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 a poem where all 12 of the sons are not just given blessings, but some of them are described, I should say. Let's not read it right this minute because I, I don't want to focus on that per se, though that would be equally interesting. Um, and then turn to page 313. Yeah, I'm skipping the poem right now because we won't have time to do everything, and I want to focus on the narrative that... that it doesn't. Ancient Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme, but it's filled with rhythm and alliteration. Uh, but it doesn't, it's, it's not an ancient form that was a rhyming form. It's beautiful, beautiful Hebrew. I mean, look at verse 19, for example, on page 312, Joan. Do you see verse 19? Yes. The translator tried to uh, capture the Hebrew in English translation, which says, God shall be raided by raiders, and, but shall raid their rear guard. 
our translator really wanted, because the Hebrew is, God gedud yigudenu vehu yagud akev. Right, so it's, that's, that Hebrew, ancient Hebrew poetry is like that. It's beautiful. I have a very... What have you got? God, a troop, shall troop upon him, but he shall troop upon their heels. Right. Someone's, the translator trying to capture the quality of the Hebrew, right, sure. which is less about its, its precise meaning than about as much about the sound of it. Okay, so verse 28 on page 313. He finishes this, this uh, 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 discourse and says, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and thus did their father speak to them as he blessed them, blessing each one with a blessing that befit him. And he gave them a charge, saying, When I am gathered to my people, bury me with my ancestors in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah facing Mamre, in the land of Canaan, the field that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite, as an inalienable gravesite, as our forever property. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The purchase of the field and the cave in it was from the Hittites. When Jacob was done charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed. He then breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So that, that's the deathbed, the whole deathbed scene that we've just read, except that we, unfortunately, jumping over the, the poem. Then in chapter 50, which, again, we won't read right now, uh, Joseph and uh, his brothers uh, get permission from Pharaoh to bring Jacob up to the cave and bury him there. And uh, then... Um, uh, they return to Egypt. And uh, the book ends with Joseph's death. Joseph, so look at page 316, just so we can get to the very end. Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's entire household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's grandchildren, the children of Machir, too, Menashe's son, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph then said to his kin, I am dying, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up out of this land to the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph adjured Israel's children, saying, God will surely take care of you. Bring my bones up from this place. Joseph died at 110 years. They embalmed him and he was put into a coffin in Egypt. End of the book of Genesis. Um, made them swear? Yes. Made, made them swear. Made them swear. To take his bones up from this place when that God will surely remember them. And so the book of Genesis ends in a coffin in Egypt. Just so it's clear. Does Joseph bury his bones in In Exodus, well, he doesn't get carried back to the cave. Joseph's tomb is up near Shechem, traditionally, but it's in the land of Israel. In the book of Exodus, which follows, 
Moses remember and and uh, collect the coffin with Joseph Bones and they carry it up with them through all those so they're actually Aaron it's a whole other interesting thing Aaron means both ark because the ark so Aaron's like a a container right yeah. uh, so the Aaron that they build covered with gold that they put the tablets in at Mount Sinai they're carrying that through the wilderness but if you want to tell a good story they are simultaneously carrying the bones of Joseph all that way also. Somewhere, somehow, his remains are also being carried. Yeah. 40 days and 40 nights. 40 years. 40 years. Yeah, 40 years. Um, Miriam? It's very interesting. Here's this chance. I mean, there's no word understanding about why did they just go back. Why did they just go back? The famine's over. Yeah, why do you think that they just gone back? It was promised to them, whatever. What are they waiting for? Why don't they just go back home? They must have been sitting in the lap of luxury. Sitting in the lap of luxury. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, they had it good. And as soon as Joseph dies at the beginning of... Uh, uh, it's the very next part of the narrative, the beginning of Exodus. It says, and after Joseph died... A new pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. Also, uh, were any of the, I mean, it doesn't say whether the brothers were living or not. So it may have been that no one was living who knew about. Joseph's the young, one of the youngest. Uh, who is he talking to here? Now, I think, is it, have his brothers all passed, predeceased him? Is this his brother's <laughs> offspring? You know, uh, but it appears his brothers are alive on the plain, plain reading of the text because. In chapter 50, his brothers, they say, having seen that... Here, we'll read that passage, too. Uh, look at page um, 315. We'll just read this passage. <coughs> verse 14. Chapter 50, verse 14. Joseph then returned to Egypt, he, his brothers, and all who had gone with him to bury his father after burying his father. Joseph's brothers, seeing that their father was dead, now said, Perhaps Joseph still bears us enmity and intends to repay us now for all the harm that we inflicted upon him. So they brought a charge to Joseph, saying, Your father left this charge before his death, saying, Thus shall you say to Joseph, Please, I beg of you, forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, though they inflicted harm upon you. Yet now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of your father's God. Joseph wept as they spoke to him. His brothers also prostrated themselves before him and said, Here we are, your slaves. This is a dramatic scene. Joseph said to them, Have no fear. Am I in the place of God? Um, which is, Hatachet Elohim Ani? Can I take the place of God? Though you intended me harm, God intended it for good in order to accomplish what is now the case to keep alive a numerous people. Now therefore have no fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus did he comfort them and speak straight to their hearts. This happened before. This is after, what? Didn't this whole scene happen before? And the, and yes. The brothers and, yes. And but now they, they, it appears that, that the brothers figured that Joseph wasn't sincere and uh, was just waiting for 
his fa- their father to die when he could really exact revenge. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, and he says, no. He, 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 break, he cries again and says, no, I'm not God. <coughs> right, right. So why did I mention that? Oh, because the brothers appear to be alive here. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, this is not chronological. Right, this is, this is after something that's not quite chronological. We're going after. Uh, okay, so much stuff in this portion, and it's the summation of the book of, Ex- of, of Genesis. So let's go back to the beginning of the Parsha and look at the, some of the classic commentary. Look at page 306, that's the beginning of the Parsha, 47, verse 28. Now, this is going to sound obscure, but it's really central to the way Torah gets interpreted. Where it says Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. In every other Torah portion written in the Torah scroll, there's always a break, a white space, between the previous portion's ending and the new portion's beginning. Now, if you haven't looked much in the Torah scroll, there's no numbers, there's no verses, there's no chapters, there's no punctuation, but there are white spaces that delineate chunks of text. You follow what I'm saying? And every single Torah portion has a delineation between it and the previous portion, except for this one. This one, the previous line at the end of, uh, of uh, um, Vayigash, which says, Israel thus settled in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They struck roots in it, were fruitful, and multiplied greatly. Leads directly into, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. No break. Well, why do, they, why do you think it's a separate section? That's how Torah commentary works. It's an, it begs to be explained. But no explanation is provided in the Torah scroll itself. That's what Torah commentary is all about. So, this is known as a, 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 a satum, the, a, a blocked or closed piece of text. That they have a term for an open piece where there's a space before, mm-hmm. or a closed piece. So, Rashi, the, who's the central commentator from the Middle Ages, who is always citing previous commentaries, uh, says, why is this Parsha blocked or closed? What's going on? Now, again, as I study Torah more and more, I've come to understand that, that this isn't fanciful. And here's my theory about this, which I think it probably has a lot, a lot to it, or I wouldn't be telling you this. Um, the scribal tradition, the people who wrote and copied and revised and kept writing the Torah were the ancient rabbis. That was their job. Rabbi and scribe were the same job. So Rashi, quoting a third century explanation, is probably quoting an explanation that accompanied the, which was known as the oral Torah, the, 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 there's the written Torah, and there's a whole oral tradition that 
explains, elaborates, delineates, you know, the text itself. And it's not a, it's not just a um, annotated edition where, you know, there's like a reason. The oral tradition is multivocal. That's why we're still studying Torah. It's got all kinds of soap. So Rashi in the 10th century isn't making this up. He's citing an ancient question that may have been encoded into the text intentionally, right? But doesn't have a specific single answer. And that's Torah study. That's why the rabbis called it black fire on white fire, right? Not that you're looking at this text, but but underneath it is constant combustion, right? And the letters are flying off to heaven, and you know. So that's the Jewish way. We're a Black we're fire on that's yeah. incredible. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Um, utterly dynamic, constantly shape shifting, and what we have is this physical artifact called the Torah, which is like a window into the true infinite universe of wisdom, right? So, so all of that is to, again, give us an appreciation of what it means when Rashi will say, why is this partial closed? And one, a, a modern scholar who's got a very small mind might say, uh, scribal error. You know, like some scribe forgot to leave a space between the letters. That's what modern scholarship does that's so different than Torah study. It tries to come up with a satisfying, rational explanation for an ancient literary form that's intended to uh, spark creativity. But Rabbi, I still don't understand why they assume that this is a separate parship and there wasn't a break. Um, I don't know, because it is. It's been the separate parship for a very, very long time. So maybe that goes back to the oral tradition as well? Yeah, maybe. Oh, so you mean, okay, I see. Who decided? I'm not sure who decided which, how that happened, where the break occurred. Yeah. I never knew this. So as far as we know, the Torah scrolls were divided into different parshot as far back as it's been written? Yeah, yes. Yes. The parshas I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. But the breaks, the way a Torah is written, where there's a white space, where there's not, is part of a scribal tradition that goes back to the earliest Torah scrolls that we have, as far as we know. When it was decided where the weekly Torah portions are, that, I, I'm not sure. So are there other breaks that don't correspond? Yeah, many other breaks. That's what I was asking. Yes, there are many breaks in the text. Okay. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is that the breaks, the white spaces, correspond to the weekly parshas except for this one? The white, there are many white spaces in the Torah in addition to the, but many. And the weekly parshas all begin after one of those breaks. There are many other breaks as well. Except this one. Except for this one. So whenever there's an anomaly like that, why is this one partial? What, what is this night different from all other nights? Go for it, Diane. But then, the, then our class is over. Go home. <laughs> so, did, so did Rashi have um, a theory or just point yeah. out? Yeah, Rashi offers two, as usual. Oh, okay. So first Rashi says, why is this Parsha closed? Because the hearts and eyes of Israel would be closed and blocked in the ensuing exile and bondage. 
So one explanation, uh, and Aviva Zornberg says, slavery brings with it a diminished ability to read and understand their own reality. Uh, so the first explanation Rashi brings is that the end of, Joseph, of Jacob's life is the beginning of our exile. Um, and then there's a lot of discussion about this because that's not true, right? The, be- uh, not the beginning of our exile and slavery. Now, again, in the Jewish mindset, this exile and slavery is not just a physical condition. It's about being exiled from our connection to the one, right? It's about our condition of, our inner condition of when we are exiled from our source. Miriam? Okay. Thought. Joseph was the one brother that was very connected with God. Yes. The brothers, other brothers. The other brothers don't evince any particular connection to God. That's right. That's how the rabbis interpret it. That, in the, that we forgot about our spiritual dimension in Egypt because we became, we, we lost, <coughs> that became blocked off from us because we became wedded to the material. That is the way this often gets explained. Does that make sense, everybody? So that our physical, political enslavement was preceded by a spiritual exile and enslavement. <coughs> Yes. And in just proceeding, we had read that while the Israelites are rich with Joseph's bounty mm-hmm. and power, the rest of the country is enslaved. So it's not just that they've accepted the material life, they've done so at the expense Good point. of the Egyptians who are now themselves enslaved. Good point. And this is corruption. Right, right. That by by embracing the material, one by definition will forget the the ethical spiritual dimension. That it's not just embracing the material. It's saying it's I'm entitled at your expense. Right, and God says in Deuteronomy, and when you enter the land, beware lest you say to yourself. It was through my own efforts and my own might that I acquired this wealth. Uh, because that's not how it works. And then it says, man does not live by bread alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just thinking about what it says in Deuteronomy about, on the same subject. And particularly Deuteronomy focuses so much on injustice mm-hmm. and equity. And no, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, and, and what I was trying to say, I was trying, what I was trying to say was to amplify your point, which is that being, a, being connected to the spiritual dimension by definition connects you to the, the, uh, um, the wrongs of injustice, mm-hmm. yes. right? Yes. However, if you are closed to that yes. because you have embraced yes. this material well-being, yes. that's when you live yes. in a gated community and blah, blah, in the land of Goshen. Um, uh, a few hands, Joan Just and Blaze and Garrett. Just a quick question. How so were the Egyptian slaves? Oh, you missed last class. Jo- oh, the one before? Joseph. Joseph in engineering. Yeah, the one before. Joseph in engineering 
the saving of all of Egypt's lives by storing food for seven years and then dispersing it during the seven years of famine does so by buying everything. They can only buy the grain in those seven years by selling them, their land, their crops, their animals, finally, and themselves until everything belonged to Pharaoh. But the Hebrews didn't have to... The Hebrews didn't have to. They were part of Joseph's family. He was privileged. So the precursors of the Israelites' enslavement. Uh, this is not even a, a. This is not a. This is not a reach, okay? Um, and why some people consider this to be the, the 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 uh, the. Uh, what's the word? Primordial or archetypal uh, description of anti dynamics of anti-Semitism, um, because now after Joseph dies, here are these Israelites living well in Goshen, who was responsible to the Egyptians for turning them into serfs? It was Joseph. And so their resentment turns against his descendants and his family. Um, so there's the dynamics of oppression, of embrace. So all the, the, the traditional commentaries don't go into that, but we can. We can. We can talk about how being that this, the close, so all of this comes, again, in the tr typical rabbinic style, out of a fact that there's no gap between two words. <laughs> but it's not made up. It's a, it's a chance to pun your way, to wordplay your way to this l much larger uh, subtext of, of the narrative. Um, and this resentment against the affluence of the Jews your hand follows them throughout history into Germany and... Well, I'm saying this can be a sub one of the ways we read the subtitle of what it means to be in exile. Right. What are all... So, ancient, in ancient Jewish history up till today, exile becomes a spiritual state as well as a physical state. Mm -hmm. um, exiled from the one. Exiled from our true selves. Exiled from our connection, our awareness. Exiled from our higher awareness. Mm -hmm. so All of that. So we living in the modern day state of Israel and still be in exile? That's right. Of course. That's right. That's right. Exile is both a physical, political, and spiritual condition in Jewish thought. And it's, it's deep. Blaze, you had your hand up, yeah. and so Gary is, and Marka and Ellen. This is so fascinating about Joseph, because on the one hand, he's saying, it's not me who interprets the dream, it's God, and God planned this, and I should be here. And on the other hand, he's committing these injustices. So in some ways, he's in exile, and in other ways, he's connected. And it's very... Um, I don't know, I just find that just fascinating that he's got this, you know, these two sides to him. Right. And, um, you know, the sort of like the payback for his exile is, um, falls upon his descendants. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yes. I just want to well say put. Very well put. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the second midrash, you say that, um, I think, 
there was one by Rashi and this one might have been somebody else. Are you saying that um, the lack of separation between the parches is considered in this midrash to be kind of like a graphic analog to the notion that in slavery we lack autonomy and separate space? It's a graphic analog to uh, something getting closed off here. Mm. Something is getting blocked or closed off with Jacob's But didn't you say something about slavery? Yes, yes. And so is it, is it possible that they're referring to that in slavery our autonomy and even our physical space is constricted to the point where we're not, where we're not independent? Um, yes. Uh, so Rashi quotes a midrash that says, the hearts and eyes of Israel will be closed in the ensuing exile and bondage, using the word satum, a word clo- which means blocked or closed mm-hmm. in the text. So, which brings up, and then I quoted Aviva Zornberg, who put it in her words, slavery brings with it a diminished ability to read and understand one's own reality. Mm-hmm. In other words, once your once you're spiritual, intellectual um, uh, uh, freedom is, is crushed, that also limits your ability to, to see the big picture. But it also crams you physically. Right, because, that's right. And what she is alluding to is that in Exodus chapter 6, mm-hmm. Moses comes to the children of Israel back from the wilderness with this message of incredible hope. It says, God's going to get you out of here. Have faith. And it says, and the people could not, I'm quoting Torah now, the people could not hear Moses because their spirits had been crushed by harsh labor. Right? Um, so, they're all connected, and there's this discussion also around Passover in the Haggadah. There's classic discussions from the Maharal in the 16th century about when were we first enslaved? The Haggadah is encoded this way. There's a debate between Rav and Shmuel that's part of the Haggadah that says we became enslaved when we became idol worshippers. And then Shmuel says, no, we became enslaved when Pharaoh enslaved, enslaved us. And the debate isn't which is right. The debate is, you know, laying out just this question of perhaps the children of Israel's, the preconditions for their enslavement were in their lack of vision, uh, their lack of uh, sense of we're going somewhere, that universe, life has a purpose, that there's a moral arc that we're supposed to follow. That, it that sets, them up. sets them up to be uh, enslaved. Marka. Another interpretation could be that there's so much momentum happening and there's such an urgency towards the end of Genesis that it's like there's no break. And speaking to what you were just saying in terms of that dynamism, I wonder about the concept of settling at all. You know, it's like if we go back to Vayeshev and Jacob's trying to settle, good luck with that, you know. In the beginning of Vayeshev, it's then Jacob settled in the land of Canaan and Shechem. And then it says, and Jacob's son Joseph, Jacob, here are the generations of the progeny of Jacob. Joseph was 17 years old when his father said to him, go out and find out how your brothers are doing. So one of the traditions of that, just so people know, is that um, Vayeshev means to settle literally, but it also can be read as to be settled in your mind. And the teaching about that is Jacob 
has come back from 20 years away. Mm-hmm. He's back in the land. His kids are all around him. And he goes, oh, well, I, I, like, my life's not going to be disrupted anymore. And because he becomes of that disposition, when his life is torn apart by Joseph and his, by this, what his brothers do to Joseph, um, that could contribute to Jacob's inability to come out of his despair. Because if we expect life to just work out at some point, we are going to get shocked again. Okay, that's what, that's what uh, the settledness is that Mark is referring to. And what is more disruptive to complacency than slavery? <laughs> oh, so it's complacency is another way of describing what's going on here. I mean, the psychologically settled, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know what's happening. I have control. I know what's happening. I have control. And it's nice here in Egypt. Yeah. Let's forget about this. Now, again, I'll put it in these terms. This promise that God made to us that we're supposed to be living in this land and, you know, eh, it's nice here. So let's forget about the, the aspirations, that, the dreams that we have, the goals that we have. And when that happens, we, we lose our dynamism in that way. Yeah. Um, Ellen. Sort of connected to that, to the question of, well, all the brothers and some of their children went back with Jacob's body and buried him. Why didn't they just thank Pharaoh for the time that they had together in Egypt right. and, and go back? And thinking, what's happening today? You have to be desperate to leave your home. They were desperate and starving, and there was nothing to eat in Canaan, so they had to go to Egypt. And in Egypt, they had pleasant lives. I mean, they took care of their herds and whatever, but they weren't, they were, uh, they were well off. Right. So when they went back and saw the old country where they had to work harder and there was not, you know, famines could happen again and, well, okay, we, we're, we're living now in Egypt with, with Joseph. But the, the <coughs> desperation factor was gone. And so they went back, and we see it today with the refugees who are trying to get someplace safe because of the gangs and the violence and the corruption and their inability to live. Okay, we have to go. Right, right. But now what you're saying is, but now when they have an opportunity to go back up, the famine's long past. They they have land holdings there. They could resume their lives in Canaan, and they They don't. Because they were comfortable why give up this there's some ease. there's some forgetting happening here there's been a promise to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob that this is your land and there's some deep forgetting going on here um, there were more hands uh, Gail and Esther just in response to what Ellen was saying it just hit me also that in Egypt they're under the direct protection of the Pharaoh right and in Ken, they're theoretically under the protection of God, but it doesn't always look so good. You know, <laughs> Nicely right, put. Right, right. So they, 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 they've been co-opted into the whole power structure. Co-opted into the whole power structure, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, which, we, which, which is easy. It's easy to happen. 
<laughs> That's right, Esther. I'm just thinking that in the time of good, you forget, you forget the promises that you've made. But isn't that the story over and over and yes. over again? Yes, that is the story. Yeah. How do we stay not blocked or closed, to use the language of the commentary, to um, that bigger picture? Mm, how do we do that? Diane, Mar Martha, and then Miriam. Uh, what's the commentary about Manasseh meaning um, I have forgotten? Ah, well, again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I'll, be ha I'll, I'll repeat it. Joseph is so wonderfully complicated because uh, when he is in Egypt uh, and marries an Egyptian, gets an Egyptian name, rides around in a chariot, wears the Pharaoh's signet ring, um, they have children. He and Osnat, the daughter of the Egyptian priest who's given to him as a wife. And so he names his first child Menashe, meaning I have forgotten my afflictions. Uh, not I have resolved my afflictions, mm -hmm. uh, and he buries them, which is one of the reasons uh, it appears that Joseph is deeply traumatized and has decided, has made some conscious or unconscious decision to suppress what happened to him by naming his child, I have forgotten. Uh, That's a big clue. It's a big clue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Martha? Um, well, I'm responding to um, what you uh, quoted from Deuteronomy, don't think that you did it on your own, because this was an ongoing um, argument I had with my conservative brother who thought that all his success in life was due to his own efforts, <laughs> and, and it never is, we never do it alone. I couldn't convince him that he was born in the right country to the right parents, then had a these opportunities. In this little and, window of stability yes, and, and prosperity. It reminds me of what somebody said about Trump, that he was um, born on third base and he, and he thinks he hit a home run. Exactly. <laughs> and um, so I, this, my, um, where, uh, my daughter who teaches third grade calls this a self-to-text connection. I made a a self-what? Self-to-text connection. Ah. She's trying to encourage that and to, for kids to understand how that to. Suddenly, some sentence illuminates a, a whole notion. That's right. Thank you. You couldn't have said it. I couldn't have said it better than that. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Miriam. Well, one of the things, Diane, we said that, because I had a thought a couple of sessions back, that we don't really know when Jacob sent Joseph off. If Joseph wasn't like maybe Joseph, uh, you know, Joseph doesn't know if his father did that. But part of that, when he said go, go check out, see what yeah. your brothers are doing. You mean set him up? Is that what you were suggesting? I, I thought. I mean, maybe if he thought if if everybody wanted to get rid of me. I see. So that was mm. my thought. Interesting. But that's not. But that um, I was hearing. <clears throat> Maybe it was in this class, maybe somewhere else <laughs> I heard this. But that because Jews don't have always a land of their own, they often connect with the ruling uh, party. Yeah. To protect them. Oh, yes. I, when we studied the, the dynamics of anti-Semitism. Was that it? 
Yes. Yeah, we were talking about this on Saturday, I think. Uh, Saturday? Maybe. Yeah. Um, Saturday, we thought. Okay, that was where I heard it. Uh, it's... It's pretty obvious that a people who have no political base, no land holding, no military, no military access, can one way to survive is by currying favor with the ruler and making yourself indispensable. And that was one of the things that we Jews have done in many different parts of the world. Well, Rothschild's a good example of that. Well, okay, so this is a much longer talk about the origins of capitalism and, anti and how anti-Semitism played into that. But yes, yes. And so, and that... And you don't need capitalism to have anti-Semitism. No, but she said Rothschild, so I was going in that direction. That's the historical moment that that happens in. Okay, but I don't want to go there now, but we, it's stuff we need to know and talk about. Yes, Bob? Uh, somewhat new topic. Today, when we, when we want to make sure our words are taken seriously, we swear on a Bible. We put our hand on a Bible. And, yeah. In those days, it seems that when Jacob asked Joseph to make sure you bring me to the land of uh, Israel to bury me, he said, you really have to promise, put your hand tachat yerechi, underneath my thigh. That was the way. We also see that when Abraham sends his servant Elimelech, oh, Eliezer. Eliezer, to find a wife for Isaac. Right. He makes Eliezer put his hand under his thigh. So the conventional wisdom about this is that this is a euphemism. Uh, for uh, your, or, your, your guy's generative organs, for the testicles. And there's also a debate. Uh, I was looking this up earlier today, actually, just because I was reading that first, that, tes that testify and testes are related in that, that by putting your hands on the other guys, in a, in, in the, by putting your hand and actually holding the other guy's balls, um, you you are showing that that it's it's like how it's a powerful thing among yeah. God, men anyway, uh, and so could it be related? Off to a handshake. Yes, thank God. <laughs> um, anyway, but the the point is. That's what I really think it is, right? It's the same thing. If you shake hands, shake on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have no weapons. So I would say, I would say, similarly to not having any weapons, it's a sign that of of trust. It's trust and all of that. So I was doing a little internet research on this, and not everyone agrees that that's the origin. Uh, uh, but it's a strong case. Because tachat yurecho, under your thigh, we have plenty of other examples in Torah where that's used as a euphemism for sexual organs. Mm -hmm. Thigh. Thigh is a euphemism in the Torah for sexual organs. So that's what's going on. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Did women never have to promise or... Women do not make vows in the Torah. They do not make vows no. in the Torah. No, and that lasted until about 1960. Wow. What, right? When women, I mean, women have always 
it, the husband has always had to vouch in patriarchy the yeah. the woman is the husband the, the 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 patriarch is the one who's who guarantee who's responsible so what changed in 1960 uh women's yes. liberation <laughs> women what right yes. esther you're you couldn't, you, you couldn't <laughs> sign a mortgage on your own you okay. couldn't get a credit card you uh you could yeah. Later than that. Later than that. Later. Aren't our memories short? Our historical. It's amazing, isn't it? It's unbelievable. Think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what she had to deal with in the fifties. The movie's coming out soon. Yeah. In terms of just even getting into law school, and then the way she had to kiss ass and all the things she had to do strategically just to even be in the room. Yeah. Right. That was true until our lifetimes. It's crazy, isn't it? So, uh, and I say that partly so that we don't, uh, we don't really do this around here anymore, which I'm grateful for, because we've had a lot of time now to study Torah together, but early Torah discussions were, see, this is the problem with our world. No, patriarchy is the problem if we're going to deal with this stuff. It's not that the Bible's just, you know, part, uh, reflecting the world that we, yeah. so anyway, uh, how did I get off on that? <laughs> Tafat uh, Yerecho, right? No, there, there's a, there are there are, women do not take vows in the. Well, the Nazarite, but that's different. The Nazarite, well, yeah. So there are exceptions where women can take a vow in the Torah, but in they, general, they weren't. They're not accepted as women, or weren't accepted as witnesses. Right. And huh, and they like, couldn't vote. Well, <laughs> to say the least. Right. That, that didn't. That again. That doesn't mean that they were treated. When you read the Bible, women are not treated, by and large, evilly. Or uh, that women have, when you read these stories in Genesis, the women characters, which we studied last year, have a great deal of agency, right? But the whole, the, the, the social political structure excludes them from being the patriarch. That's just the, that's the way it is. That's, uh, then the evils of sexism can grow in those contexts, uh, Anyhow, uh, just yes. One quick thing, because we're moving around a little bit. The, the idea, I'm very interested in what you and this gentleman were saying about... This guy, Bob? Yes, I'm sorry, Bob. It's okay. Um, about how, how, how becoming a gentry by people changes one, and the, the, the security in, in, in Egypt, how it kind of uh, corrupted something. Could it be that the Torah is saying that inversion is the only thing that matters, in that I'm telling you that the struggle is to get to the land of Israel, but that's nonsense. The, the, the true Jew is in diaspora, is what he finds only along the way, and this goal will turn out to be entirely offended, and besides the point contrary to where you need to be. Oh, uh, would you say it again so that well, people just, can follow it? Because suggesting that in uh, Gary, it's Gary. Uh, Jeff. Gary, right? Yes. yes, yes. I just had a moment where I thought Gary wasn't Gary. Um, uh, Gary is presenting a a very um, uh, uh, strong stream of Jewish thought. So say it again. Well, that the. the, the, the the construct, the narrative as it's laid out is that the journey is to land, a land called Israel. The promised land. The promised land. But many clues are given along the way that every time Jews get attached to any piece of land, not Israel for sure, but 
they, they become corrupted. And maybe the final stone that the Torah leaves for us to turn over, without making it explicit, is that the whole idea of going towards any promised land is a nonsensical, chimerical thing that we need to completely toss out. It's the, the Jew does his best along the way. His greatest challenges are presented. He can't hear Moses when Moses comes down from the mountain of people and says, bounty and beauty is waiting for you. No, no, no. That's where their challenge is, and that's where we grow. And thinking that, 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 that the arrival is the point is nonsense. The journey, not the arrival. Uh, and there's, what supports that argument is that the five books of Moses end on the banks of the Jordan, the other side of the Jordan. The books of the Torah, the Bible continue with the book of Joshua, but we don't read them every week. We just go back to the beginning again and start over. We never get there. Right? We never get there. And so that also is significant. Why don't the five books of Moses end with the sixth book, Joshua? Why isn't the Torah six books where Joshua crosses the Jordan and we conquer the land? Now, that's one of the holy books, but it's not part of the scroll. So it's really deep that way. No, you're, 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 that's a beautiful and, val and deeply valid um, uh, uh, line of thinking in Judaism. Yes, Diane. My brother, many of you know, has spent his entire life, uh, a career, lives in Israel, and uh, working for the Zionist dream to really create a state that would be morally superior. Right, not just, not just create a state, but create a state that fulfills this vision of, of justice in, in Jewish teaching. Right. And Her brother's awesome. You know, I won't say he's been less than successful, but you look at the poli I mean, he's been very successful look, personally, but it, if no, you no. look at the politics... I know, but if he that, wasn't there, it could be a lot worse. Right. So a few years ago, I said to him, well, I forget what was happening, but something bad was happening. I said, do you feel bad about this? You know, that you moved there, you spent your whole life there, your whole life's work for this goal. He said, no. He said, we fought the good fight. Good for him. <laughs> Good for and him. He's still fighting the good fight. I know, he's and much, and he's still making a difference. Trying, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The fight's the. That's, thank you, but that's what your brother says. Good for him. Yeah. Joan. It just brings to mind the the concept of um, nishkam karma, which means desireless action. That you do the action without thinking of the result, and it's a path. Um, I was going to say process, not object. Process, not object, exactly. and in Jewish wisdom sayings, in Pirkei Avot, it says. Do the will of your maker without thought of receiving reward. Mm -hmm. Right, that's how it says it in, uh, in, in rabbinic teachings. Mm -hmm. Miriam? That makes me think of what Afro-Americans and blacks and coming to this country and slavery and how when we see, well, why can't you just accept? And they don't. I mean, it's the same thing, a feeling like, oh, and we turn, oh, and... So when we say, well, there seems no change. Oh, yes, it is the same thing we're every day. And I feel like, I mean, they, I just feel like so much in our society right now is the women's movement, everything. It's like, let's just keep going. So it's like. Uh, what do you call it? Holy, dis holy dissatisfaction yeah. as a, uh, a good thing. Uh-huh. 
because you know something could be better. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Did, did the rabbis talk about that sixth book, about, about the five books ending here, and that being emblematic or symbolic of this? Nothing comes to my mind. Journey that, that no, not, no I, think, I think that's a very, our very good postmodern kind of push on it, yeah. but it's there already. We're not making it up. But I don't, this doesn't, it's not something I've encountered that much in classical texts. Is there poetry in that sixth book that equals the others? No. no. The book of Joshua is boring. <laughs> uh, except it's got a few good stories. It's got the walls of Jericho, and, uh, but a lot of it is, is, is literally a description of the boundaries that each tribe's land holdings mm. are. So, because even more so, yeah, so yeah, it's so not a very in, it's not a, it's not an inspiring book. Yeah, yeah, although there's discussion that there is belief in Philly Orthodox Judaism of something called the world to come in some way, mm-hmm. where we all reappear, we get resurrected, but. The thrust of Judaism, unlike traditional Christianity, is about staying on the path, that it's all about the path of life here, and how we are in this life here, and are we following the path of the divine, the divine, you know, what what, what we were just talking about, rather the spiritual. and it's not about some kind of reward in the hereafter. Um, it's all the focus is on the path mm-hmm. here. That's all I wanted to say. Very much what you were saying, Gary. But that's 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 all the teachings. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, then I hold your thoughts for a second. So I keep being drawn to Parshat Akev in um, uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, I'll just read to you. Uh, and it never occurred to me before that Akev is the Ayin Kufet and Yaakov, you know, Ekev means pursuant of, or on the heels of, or, but anyway, and these are the famous passages that I want to remind you of. Um, Remember the long way that the eternal your God has made you travel in the wilderness these past 40 years. This is Moses speaking. In order to test you by hardships, to learn what was in your hearts. Mm-hmm whether you would keep the divine commandments or not. Bear in mind, let's see, uh, God subjected you to, the, to hunger and then gave you the manna to eat, food you'd never seen before, in order to teach you that a human being does not live on bread alone, but that on everything that comes forth from the mouth of the eternal. Uh, and then it says, uh, Bear in mind that the eternal your God disciplines you just as a parent disciplines a child. Therefore, keep the commandments and walk in God's ways and show reverence. For the eternal is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and springs and fountains issuing from plain and hill, a land of wheat and barley, vines and figs, pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land where you may eat food without stint, where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you can mine copper, So when you have eaten your fill, give thanks to the eternal your God for the good land given to you. Take care lest you forget 
and uh, when you've eaten your fill and have built fine houses to live in and have everything you want. Beware lest your heart grow haughty and you forget that it was the eternal your God who freed you from the house of bondage. Um, remember, and you say to yourselves, and you forget all these things, and you say, my own power and the might of my own hand have won this wealth for me. No, it is the eternal your God who gives you the power to get wealth. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 8, take a look at it. It's on, yeah, it's on page 1230 in here. Oh boy, this is a really great passage. And that's where the phrase, man does not live by bread alone, right. comes from. I need instruction from being a myself. That's right, that's right. So I had to, I wanted to share that with you. It sort of speaks to... So when, you know, not to get too political, but if we go back just maybe a few years, um, remember Barack Obama was sort of referencing that and caught a lot of crap from the conservatives who said exactly that. He got in trouble for saying, you didn't build it by yourself. You didn't build right. it alone. All of us are part of that. It's a system. And he got, he got in trouble for that. And I think he was uh, channeling some of this mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. so what if he well, wait a sec. Uh, Lori had her hand up before, and I asked her to wait. I just had a brief reflection after what Miriam said about the struggle. I mean, we, our, gen our generation, you know, the Marxist struggle, the whole idea Well, I want to come back now, after I hear a couple more comments, I want to come back to that cosmic evolution, that sense of exile from, from cosmic consciousness. Oh, sorry, Mark. Um, but uh, Esther, oh, Joan, you wanted to say something before? Okay, Esther, did you want to say something? All I, all I said was, so what did we do to bring the, to bring us to Trump? What, what happened? Ah, uh, anyone got uh, <laughs> that answer? And a metro card will get me on the subway. Um, Marka. You're getting me. Oh, thank you for saying that. And Prophecy I, is aspirational. And then I just wanted to add one other comment, which is that we could be in a Garden of Eden like scenario, plenty like you just described in Deuteronomy there. But if the consciousness is still in a scarcity mindset, it's not going to matter. Did you all hear her? Yep. If, if the we can be in a Garden of Eden everything we want, as that passage in Deuteronomy says. But if our consciousness is in a scarcity model, we will not... We'll still feel scarcity, which is what happens to us all the time. I mean, the, uh, uh, each one of us experiences multiple times a day a feeling, I'm sure, that something we don't have enough. But I'm going to challenge that. I'm going to say that uh, first of all, it's obviously valid and, and, and well stated, but maybe the, the, the idea is that we won't feel any scarcity at all, and that lack of awareness of how the world actually operates will make us 
more highly vulnerable than we would. Have. I would say that's also true. I would but say either, either one or the other. Right, answer. right. Both of them are pitfalls. Right. Yeah. So now I want to jump off what Marcus said to go right back to this initial that this is a closed parsha. Because Rashi, as is typical, offers two interpretations. One is the one we've been following, uh, which is um, that exile mentality. Of, in, but related to that, he then says, or maybe, why is this Parsha closed where it says in jo- Jacob lived? Maybe it's because Jacob's own consciousness is blocked. And it says, now I'll explain to this, he wanted to reveal what would happen at the end of days, but then the Shekhinah departed from him and he began to ramble. Now, what's that mean? Oh, um, take a look now at uh, uh, page 309, the beginning of, page, of, of chapter 49. Now he's finished blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, and it says, Jacob then summoned his sons, saying, Heasfu, gather round, I may tell you, so I may tell you, et asher yikra etchem ba'acharit hayamim, what will happen to you at the end of days. So it seems like Jacob is about to offer a prophecy, and then he doesn't. And the commentators notice this all the time. He describes, wow. he describes each of the kids, but he doesn't give them, he's, now, it, don't, you could argue the other way, that this, is, that this is prophetic, but the rabbis want to make a big point of that. Let me read you what, uh, um, what Aviva Zornberg has to say about this. Um, Jacob wanted to reveal the end. This is the moment when Jacob calls his children around his deathbed and proclaims his intent to speak to them of the last things. Uh, what follows is a description of each son with no eschal- eschatological reference. Eschatology means at the end of days, you know, that we will all be in the promised land or, you know. Um, it is this discontinuity between Jacob's preamble and the content of his final speech that generates the Midrashic narrative. For Rashi quotes the Midrash and says, he sought to reveal the end, but the presence of God departed from him, him and he began to say other things. The whole deathbed speech is, it seems, the diversion from Jacob's original intent and bears at best an oblique relation to the final meanings that Jacob would have wished to communicate to his children. Um, And um, in this reading, uh, Jacob wants to offer a prophetic if, uh, you know, like the prophets do, if you all obey the Torah, then one day you will all, you know, and instead, uh, he is, is he prevented from seeing the end or speaking of it? Uh, what is it to have the presence of God, God depart from one on one's deathbed? The Sfat Emet, this Hasidic teacher, makes a powerful suggestion. To reveal the end is simply to communicate the idea of ultimate harmony. It is not a matter of graphic descriptions of the manner and the timing of redemption, 
It is to convince Jacob's children on the verge of exile and diffusion, about to lose all sense of autonomy, mm-hmm. of the intelligibility of their destiny, that their experience really does have a, 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 a movement toward meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let, let me just quote a little more. A certain vitality of vision is given to Jacob and then blocked off for him. Mm-hmm. For if Jacob had succeeded in conveying to his children a strong, unequivocal vision of the end, quote-unquote, the experience of exile would have been entirely robbed of its necessary sting. Excellent. This is what the Sfadema teaches. That experience knows of no easy resolution. Mm-hmm. Jacob's children will have to live its absurdity and its pain, its apparently fruitless yearning, without intoxicating visions of harmony to sustain them. What resolutions, what orderings they achieve, they will have to achieve in the immediacy, the vulnerability, and the confusion of their own lives. I thought that was beautifully written. That uh, that's our job, is in the midst of the contingencies, the vulnerabilities, the confusion of our own lives, we gather together to summon a vision of how things could be. That's essentially what... uh, And why does Jacob fail? Um, Rambam, who is living in the 12th century in Egypt and is a physician, among other things, says... uh, uh, and it says in the text, the Shekhinah departed from him. When it says the Shekhinah departs from you, it means you lose contact with the divine aspect of reality. Uh, why? Because of Jacob's sorrow and anxiety during all the days of his mourning for, Hol- for Joseph, the Holy Spirit departed from him until he was brought tidings that Joseph was alive. Then the quote, the spirit of Jacob revived. Which, the, which is translated as the spirit of prophecy, rested once again upon their father Jacob. And the sages make the point this way. Prophecy does not come to rest in the midst of lethargy or of melancholy, but only in the midst of joy. That's fascinating. Isn't it? Prophecy, this is a quote from the Talmud. Prophecy does not come to rest on us in the midst of lethargy or melancholy, but only in the midst of joy. Now, joy here doesn't mean happiness. Joy means aliveness, connection, you know. Uh, So then that got me thinking about Jacob's life journey. And when when you think about it, um, he spends many, many years of his life completely disconnected from, from a sense of God. Right? He has this vision, and he also, because he's Jacob, he also has many, um, he doesn't fulfill his promises either. So he, he, when he, he has this vision of, he lives the first part of his life. We don't know much about it except that he has to run away because his brother wants to kill him. And he has the vision of Jacob's ladder and the promise from God that when he comes back to this spot, mm-hmm. Bethel, when he comes back to the con- I promise you, you're going to come back. And when you come back, come to this spot where you're having this dream, Bethel, 
and make a sacrifice to me. And Jacob goes off for 20 years. Disconnected, in a way. Because when he comes back and he meets his brother Esau, mm-hmm. two things happen. First, they have this beautiful reunion. And then Esau says, come with me, my brother. And Jacob says, no, the children are small. And, you know, I'll slow you all down. I'll meet you up there and see he and they say goodbye he never goes there he goes a different direction and he settles in Shechem and then a few years later so he never fulfills that promise he makes to Esau but a few years later it says and the voice of God came to Jacob and says go to Bethel as you promised you would Uh he's completely blown that off too he's such a complicated guy uh, a, a, a complicated guy, this Jacob. He then goes to Bethel and offers up a sacrifice there, but only after being reminded by God that he promised to do that. Then the story of Joseph and his brothers unfolds. And when Joseph's coat comes back torn, it says that Jacob's head was bowed in grief, and he was in grief until. 20 years later, mm-hmm. when the brothers come back and say, Joseph is alive. Mm-hmm. And that's where we come to our... And Joseph, Vayechi, Joseph's spirit was revived. So Joseph spends a lot of time disconnected. Yeah? Well, that's what I meant about the scarcity model. Like, it really wouldn't matter if he was in an Edenic situation because he's still just missing Joseph so much. Mm-hmm. So, and the Shekinah as the divine feminine really is about abundance of the awareness of abundance isn't present the relationship itself isn't present so Jacob's own consciousness is blocked how can Jacob give his children the vision that he wants to give them if he has spent so much time disconnected in grief or in his own despair and that brings me back to the line about Rachel how he's still on his deathbed, regretting something, missing something. Mm-hmm. And it's bringing him, in this story that I'm telling, in and out of connection to the people around. Because then after he remembers Rachel, he says to Joseph, who are these kids? It's like, he can't stay there. And that's, so that's the other reason they, Rashi says this Parsha is blocked. It's because Jacob himself is incapable of staying in that place of connection mm. and instead is, is, is repeatedly blocked. And so I'll just share a little more how that uh, his sons try to help him in the Midrash because in verse 2 it says, Assemble and hearken, O sons of Jacob, hearken to Israel your father. Hikavtsu v'shim'u b'nei Yaakov. Listen, sons of of Jacob. Shimu B'nei Yaakov. And so the Midrash says, and his sons responded, Shema Yisrael. Oh, wow. <laughs> Listen, Israel. God is our, Adonai is our God, Adonai is one. And it says, Jacob then revived, none of this is in the text. Jacob then revived and said, Blessed is the name of the one forever and ever. So his children bring him back wow, into connection. That's where that comes from? No, that's not where the Shema comes from. No. Oh. The Shema comes from Deuteronomy. The Shema comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Okay. But they're doing a beautiful play on the fact that Israel and Jacob, 
If you say, sh- if they're saying to their dad, listen, right. dad, right. Right. Adonai or God, Adonai is one. And that allows him once again to be revived. And the, the point that, that that was leading me towards is that that gave me a nice frame to talk about Jacob having the name Israel also. That, and we've talked about this before. I've looked for consistency in when he's called Jacob or Israel by based on the context of a text. I don't, can't find consistency except that it's constantly alternating. So the story I want to tell, remember, he gets the name Israel at a moment of his supreme connection. You've wrestled with God. And he walks into the sunshine after that. And his name is now Israel instead of Jacob. So I would want to propose that Israel is when Jacob's consciousness is unblocked. Of course, absolutely. And Jacob is when it's blocked. Uh And that Jacob and Israel's life is a constant oscillation between these conditions of awareness. And that... Hmm? Just like ours. Period, yes. Just like ours. That he's Father Jacob and Father Israel. Mm -hmm. And so... uh, And I thought of that when I was reading this Midrash, Mm -hmm. where he says... Where he's going to reveal to them the end of days, the vision of possibility. And then he can't. And then he, they say to him, listen, Dad, God is one. And then he can. And then he can't. And so if that's about all of us, then what we can do is help remind each other that there's a big picture, that there's hope, that there's a goal, that there's a dream. Imagine, you know, that there's... And that when we forget to do that, we, our consciousness gets blocked. And so the blocking of the consciousness um, of Jacob and his, uh, the children of Israel in Egypt precedes the, the, that, that sense of exile and enslavement it are the conditions necessary that then can lead to their political and economic enslavement right. later. That actual thing of, of the son saying to the father, remember that the God is one, is actually not... No. It's a word play. So now, all of that was just evoked from the... Well, it's evoked from where it says in verse 2, Shim'u b'nei Yaakov. Verse 2 on page 309. It's, this is how the, we do sacred wordplay. That's what Torah study is. And so on page 309, Jacob calls them together and says, Shim'u b'nei Yaakov. Hear, O children of Jacob. And it's such an interesting contrast to Shema Yisrael, hear Israel. And so that's where they insert that imagined dialogue into the text. Yes, Gary. I, I, that, that's so great. I, I hate, I've got to take one more diversion. Okay. Okay, okay allow me. I'm so fascinated about the sixth book of the Torah uh-huh. and, and, and the clue that it seems to suggest at the end of the fifth that there's more to come. And for me, that opens up to the words of the apostles. And it, to me, uh, when, when my older son was bar mitzvah, 
I asked them to take a look at all the traditions. And in the, in, in, in the New Testament, I said something like, the aching beauty and exquisite pain of the story of Jesus. And as I get older, my identification with the Jesus model becomes greater. And I wonder if in some way the wisdom was pointing to the point in the Torah that we can never absorb the achingness in this document. We can never live with the pain of the journey alone. Save that, us. That, that in some way, Jesus, the Jesus, idea, save us. And Jesus' and name you know, means, I'm, I'm, but you know what Jesus' name means? Save us. Save us. That's what Jesus' name means. And to have some figure that we can go to to say, I will lay down my burden here without sacrificing the story of these the great books, do you know? To say, there, I am not strong enough to do it by myself. Mm -hmm. I just think that maybe that is the sixth book. These are the, the six books in some way, for me personally. Okay, okay. And uh, 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 let's see, Bob, you want to say something? Uh, just coincidentally, uh, I was looking at my lunch bag. <laughs> it has a picture of the Ma'arat HaMachpelah. The Tomb of the Patriarchs. The Tomb of the Patriarchs. In Hebron, where, uh, where you, the, the, this is the ancient purported site of that tomb in Hebron. I've been there, and uh, it's a holy place to uh, Muslims and Jews and Christians, and it's where the patriarchs and the matriarchs are buried. On his lunch bag. Jacob, Jacob, and Jacob and Leah are buried there. Rachel's tomb is on on the road to Bethlehem. You can visit Rachel's tomb between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, uh, and that's uh, yeah on the way to Ephrat. Miriam, I have to bring up that having a son die and had six months in order to say goodbye to him. What I found through grief groups is that parents whose child dies by suicide or that suddenly they die and they never get to say goodbye to them, they carry that grief. It's a much deeper grief. So here is Jacob, who's just sent Joseph out on this journey, and he doesn't see him. I think about that, that because um, for these parents, they may have all these other children, but it, that one who died somehow is the somehow the treasured one, and they can't see, and they really struggle to take in the other children. So that, that that's beautiful, Miriam. Yeah. His sudden disappearance makes it impossible right. for Joseph, Jacob to have any any so process. Can't link up to hope. Or to his other, the rest of his yeah. family, and they all feel abandoned by him because of that. Yeah. It's very deep. And I'll conclude with what you've said because, again, the traditional commentaries also talk about that. And I'll explain it again in the kind of, oh, I guess, um, more mythic way they have of describing things. It says this is the only deathbed scene in Genesis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? When Abraham dies, it says he died. And when Isaac gives his blessing, because he thinks he's going to die, uh, he lives another 20 years. So, so they point out, and they just want to make the point, and it's not about logic, that Jacob's deathbed scene is the only deathbed scene where a person lays out his desires, his hopes, his words. 
and it be, and and so and they point out that the parsha begins. It says, um, and they came to Joseph and said, "Look, your father is chole. Your father is ill. He's getting weaker." And they say, Jacob invented weakness and illness before death so that he'd have a chance to speak to his children. <laughs> he wanted them to gather around. He wanted the opportunity to say goodbye. Um, and so he invented sickness that people used to just drop dead before that, according to um, the Midrash. But now there was a chance, if you're lucky, to linger and to be able to say what you need to say and have your family around you, what we would now call a good death. You, you, you know what I mean? So I'm thinking about what you said, and it made me, that's also, they were aware of that then too. Yeah, so. Because I have all that, but I think about what it would have been like if you had gone. That's right. refused to be comforted. That's the other line they point out. Joe, Jacob refused to be comforted in the wake of his son's death. Yeah. Um, he refused to be comforted. Eric? I've just been, there's so many layers in this discussion, but it occurs to me, I've been wondering for the last few minutes, um, I mean, the Torah, the Torah is written, but is, it has been recorded by people. Correct. And they choose to put, they choose to write some things, and they chose not to write about some things. That's right. So I, I, with the discussion, I'm thinking about why write about this about you know, we started 10, 15 minutes ago with you know where, where Jacob is about to offer this wisdom to his children and then he doesn't right so why why put that in and then there's all the it, it, it seems to me there's this intergenerational there's this intergenerational communication that's happening uh, not only in the story but on the part of the writers as well they they don't they don't want this to be just a story, or even a story about you know a family, a family's uh, patriarch and, and his and his children, but there but a, a, also a story to be passed on through not only that generation but the future generations as well. Yes, and and so we get to answer that question of why is it because we have to figure it out ourselves. Is it, you know, was his desire to show us the whole big picture something that we don't really get to be privileged with? Uh, yes? Even though it's not a prophecy, and to see your children in that way and to describe them and to relate them to animals and to say that they can each be different but be whole, it kind of reminds me of Brigitte in a way. You know? Yes, I read about that too. So, oh, no, 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 I read about it. Yeah. <laughs> that um, the, um, the blessing that he does give to them, which we didn't, I knew we couldn't do both these things today, um, is fascinating because he, he compares his children to animals, different animals, and it's a, uh, I'm sorry we don't have time to do that, but you were saying. Um, next year. Yeah, we'll do that next year. But repeat what you said, Martha. I think there's something in this that is resolved in that throughout Genesis we have this almost waste material of there's these pairs of two and one of them's godly and one of them isn't. And then with Jacob, he actually is able to have 12 sons 
and they're all each their own thing, but don't have to be in conflict. I mean, it just speaks to this multiplicity and this meaning throughout the multiplicity in a way I think whereas before it's always been yes to one and no to the other. That's right. Joseph has a, uh, a, a prolific and has not two to be in contrast to each other, but 12 who each, in, uh, each of their own, and, and in the land of Israel, they will each have their own land holding, and uh, yet they will also be a the children of Israel at the same time. So there's a hope in there that you can read in this of the possibility of, of, of coming together despite everyone being um, unique, disparate, people. And I feel like this is the first integration in that nothing's left out. I mean, to go back to the zodiacal thing or whatever, exactly. but it's like 12 is really the number of completeness, and we have quote-unquote negative attributes that he's listing, but it's not negative like cast out. That's right. You know, it's it's really a... It's realistic. It's it the human condition. And it's the entire need. It's everything. The children of Israel become, an enti- yeah. become a oneness. And become a sort of Circle too, in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, two, we have time for three, four more comments, and then we'll stop. Uh, Ellen, and Gail, and Esther, and Joan. Uh, throughout Torah, for all that it's patriarchal, it also upsets the apple cart by promoting the younger child to primacy is more worthy for whatever reason than the older. And this is the first time blessing Abraham and Menashe. This is the first time that that happens without conflict. Right. Joseph accepts it, the brothers accept it, and they go on. Oh, interesting. And not like mm. Jacob and Esau and all Cain and Abel back to creation. Can I respond? Well to said, yes. Um, I think one of the questions is like, is, is it a real subversion to bless the second son and then second bless the first son? Or is that just an inversion of power? Kind of like what we were just talking about how playing up to power is often the mode for the disenfranchised. So it's like, it's just kind of this reflipping of the hierarchy, whereas I think the real subversion is to bless all. And this is the first time that happens. Nicely put. It's both. Thank you, thank you both. Gail, did you want to add to that? I was just picking up on Mark and commenting on the Zodiac, because it's, it's both all of these children now embody all of the characteristics of humanity, right. of people, and all the animals, and by having it as it clearly was at the time, equivalent to zodiacal sun, mm-hmm. you're bringing in all of Rashid. It's all of creation. All of so in, in this story, which is so, in the end, still so centered on, sometimes we, we're connected and sometimes we're not. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's always all, all of it. Oh, well put. Oh, yes, yes. So uh, uh, what I want to say about that is that, yes, this is a literary work, and so you want to hear an echo of the first chapter of creation here at the end with the wholeness of our, our, we're the protagonists of the children of Israel making now also the whole of the cosmos. That's beautiful. Esther and then Joan, and then we'll wrap up. I just wanted to comment on the humanity embodied in the character of Jacob. Yes. That he was not all good and he was not all bad, but that in his life he had wrestled with God. In his life he had seen this vision. So that gives him the greatness. 
that gives him the scope. But he's also human. And so the learning that I get from that is that, yes, you can, you can say bad things. You can not always be the good person. But in the sum totality of your life, you can ascribe to being like Jacob. So well put. Thank you. <laughs> Just beautiful. Joan? Um, maybe that's the prophecy on the deathbed is the vision of that unity. I think you're right. The diversity becoming one and including all is one. I think you're right. Oh, wow. And I'll, I'll, I'll also add that in terms of the end of the book, reflecting the beginning of the book, the first brotherly conflict is Cain and Abel, the first brothers, right? And the uh, younger being preferred over the elder, and the elder kills the younger and says, and God says, where's, I've said this before, God says, where's your brother? Uh, where's your brother Abel? And he responds, am I my brother's keeper? And then you could say that question, that binary question continues all the way through until, as you've heard me teach before, Joseph answers the question, I am. Um, I am my brother's keeper. And that's another bit of like, um, and the next brothers who come along are going to be Moses and Aaron, who are partners in leadership as opposed to uh, 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 rivals. rivals. Right. Um, We finished the book of Genesis together. Thank you. Thank you.